Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. Today on Raise the Line, I'm going to be joined by Greg Osmond, Chief Medical Officer of Pathology Watch, which provides digital products and services for dermatology practices, including integration with electronic medical record systems. I'm looking forward to talking to him about how he sees the role of pathologists on the care team and how pathology is changing, including the growing use of artificial intelligence in the field. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Greg. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So maybe we can just dive right in. Can you start by telling us about your background? What got you interested in medicine? Sure. So I, I'm originally from Utah. I grew up in Utah and um, Missouri for, for a bit. and then, But I've always been drawn into the sciences, been interested in science for a long time. So I bailed on college for, for a couple of years and went on a mission to Honduras. So I was in Honduras for a couple of years. And one day I was down in the middle of nowhere in a place called Choloteca, Honduras. And I got, we got home that night and under our door, there was this letter from some general of the US Air Force saying, your country needs you, come to this address tomorrow. We had no idea what that was. So we, should, so we went, obviously, and the US Air Force was doing cataract surgery for these people down in Honduras. And they spoke Spanish, but they couldn't communicate with the Hondurans because it's just you know, a little bit of an interesting dialect and uh, we were really in the middle of nowhere. And so, uh, yeah, so we ended up interpreting for them for their cataract patients for a couple days and saw that and it was incredible going from blind to uh, being able to see in a matter of you know minutes basically. So that's that's what got me into medicine. So when I came back, when I came back, you know, I was on a career into healthcare from there. That's a pretty compelling story. That's amazing. Um, and, and then from there, why did you choose dermatology and then eventually move on into dermatopathology? I was always interested in the diagnostic specialties and made my way through, uh, you know, as a medical student, you, you rotate through everything. I ended up fixating on dermatology um, and at, I went to Duke for medical school. We got an extra year to basically pursue what, whatever we wanted. So I did uh, medical research in with melanoma with dermatologists and oncologists and ended up spending more time at the microscope with the dermatopathologist than, than in clinic. Uh, or I ended up at least liking that piece of it better, it kind of the instant gratification of immediate diagnosis rather than having to wait for labs or anything, you know, for a lot of it. <laughs> so yeah, I was really drawn to that in, and at Duke, Dermpath is in the pathology department, not the dermatology department. And so I ended up going into pathology at Duke to pursue Dermpath. I knew that I wanted to do this subspecialty before I wanted to do pathology in general, but, but yeah, I really like pathology and it's the clinical pathologic co- correlation of it is what I like the most. Um, and coming to something definitive faster is always, you know, very nice. So <laughs> I can totally relate. You know, my first passion was in germ path as well, to be honest with you, specifically around psoriasis. And so I, I for all the same reasons, so I, I totally get that. Tell, tell us a little bit about Pathology Watch, how, how it got started, what it's all about. You know, when it officially started was about three years ago, but digital pathology has been around for a long time. Um, but it kind of during residency became more prominent, at least to me. And so I ended up doing a concentration track through the GME office. And I focused on digital pathology and kind of business models around digital pathology. Um, and then I went to the Harvard system for dermatopathology. And at the time, uh, we would rotate through, you know, the various different institutions affiliated with the Harvard Medical School. And, and I was already interested in digital pathology, looking for models. And at the time, I met uh, one of my main business partners, uh, and he has a background in machine learning and was the IBM executive track, you know, and worked with Watson. 
um, and has done other startups, successful startups in the healthcare space. And so after I'd been in practice about three years and I'd stayed in touch with him, um, looking at various things, and that's when the FDA approved the first digital pathology platform for primary diagnosis in the United States, which was the Philips IntelliSight platform. And so once that happened, it was it basically green-lighted that this is going to happen sooner rather than later in the United States. And so that's when we started Pathology Watch. And the reason, so the reason we're an AI company, so digital pathology is great for various reasons, but it's very expensive and it cuts out no cost. It adds in a ton of expense and, you know, it's, there's some convenience, but, you know, you're not making any more money, you're making less money. Uh, and so without AI being part of the digital pathology uh, rollout or systems to make it more efficient, uh, you really can't justify it. And, and, and a lot of systems have been candid about that. They're, they're betting that at some point this becomes valuable, but it's really an expense. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not helping them with their bottom line any. And, and I know that the pathology community has been trying to raise awareness in recent years about the role they play on the care team and, and specifically pushing for more direct relationship with patients. I, I guess I'm curious, what, what do you think is behind that from your perspective? What are the, the benefits of pathologists being more visible to patients in general? If you ask different pathologists, you'll get very different answers on that. Uh, and some of the key thought leaders inside of pathology have pushed this for a long time. This is the narrative that I, I've heard by them. Uh, and, and basically say like, we need to be visible so people see what we're doing. It's not a matter of trying to do more things. It's a matter of letting people know like what it actually is. Um, cause it's, it's highly involved and highly technical. Uh, and when you put something in and get an answer out, there's a, there's a host of things that happen inside of that black box that, that you need highly qualified and highly trained people to do. I mean, so that, that's kind of one of the main drivers. I think there's, uh, there are plenty of other reasons uh, in my opinion, as to why it's important for pathologists to be visible. And, and a lot of it has to do with, with patient care. So especially now, so with all of the new diagnostic tests that have come out over, not diagnostic, even like prognostic tests, just other modalities that have come online, um, pathologists really are in a position, in my opinion, they're probably the best positioned to manage all of that. Um, but part of that our clinical findings and you need to be involved with clinicians to understand, you know, other features in order to come to the best diagnosis. So that space is not well-defined inside of healthcare. Who's going to control that. And then I've also seen some other people advocating that, Oh, we should be more directly involved with the patient, actually talk to the patient, uh, social media, things like that. Um, I think it's fantastic. And there is value. It's just not compensated unless you're doing an FNA or bone marrow biopsy. You're not getting paid. It's charity work to go out and do that. Um, whereas, Overseeing the laboratory and the diagnostic testing and interacting with clinicians, making sure the patient has the best, uh, the best diagnosis there is, at least depending on how you're structured, the pathologist has an incentive to take that over. And they, and they will be compensated either directly or indirectly for a lot of that work. So, you know, exactly what people should be doing, I don't know. I just, but for the specialty overall, there is a win um, for you to be visible and engaged both for the patients to win and for the specialty to win. And for you personally, if you, if the pathologist steps out and fills this role for a hospital or an organization that recognizes, you know, there's these eight things in, you know, in whatever diagnostic area that you're looking at that all need to be integrated together in a comprehensive report to give the best care, who's going to do that? And, and I really do think pathologists are best suited. They just may not want to do it. You know, some of them just want to sit in their office and just look at glass. I guess that's kind of how I see it evolving. Yeah. And, you know, so what, what you're talking about is fascinating, the incentive structure shaping the scope of practice. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. How has the practice of pathology changed in recent years? A ton. It's changed. It's changed so much. 
a lot of the investment in the venture capital markets and even some private equity have been focused on pathology and diagnostics. Uh, and it has changed a lot. So there are still, I mean, there are still pathologists that practicing that they never trained on immunostains. Um, so, so if you want to say like, how's it changed? Immunostains was a huge change. You look at all of the changes in like hematolymphoid diseases or neoplasms over the last 15 years. I mean, it's amazing um, how much it's modified and changed the different testing modalities that go into it with, you know, like flow and fish and, um, you know, PCR testing and next gen sequencing. I mean, next gen sequencing is still coming out in some institutions and, and who's going to oversee that um, is still, you know, questionable. You know, some pathologists do molecular training and they're highly, you know, highly trained to do that, but you don't need to be a pathologist to be in that space. Th those are all kind of like ancillary testing. And some pathologists specialize in, you know, clinical pathology where it's more like that type of testing or blood testing, you know, chemistry or whatever. But most pathologists tend to be in the anatomic pathology space where they're looking at glass slides and diagnosing the H&E. And then they'll, they'll order these extra testing to help them. But that's kind of the bread and butter of, of the pathologist that hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Um, and so that is what has been a dramatic shift in, or I guess it's shifting undress at the moment, uh, which is the digitization of pathology uh, and the technology associated with it. And, and that's, the, that's the space that Pathology Watch is in. Um, it's not just us. There are a host of startups that are targeting you know, different, different parts of anatomic pathology in terms of AI as well as digital pathology vendors that are, you know, coming out with new systems that are smaller, cheaper, more efficient. It's rapidly changing. I, I don't think for most, for most pathologists, nothing's really changed because they're not digital. They're still doing the same glass. They're like, well, you know, we'll, we'll see how this really plays out. Um, and I don't think that they recognize the investment that's in it right now. It is massive, the amount of money that's, that's coming into digital pathology and AI right now, and that it has over the last couple of years. And there's no way that this isn't going to change healthcare. Um, within the next five years. And at some point within maybe, you know, 10 years, I would say that at least a portion of anatomic pathology, the standard of care will be to digitize it and to use some type of algorithm development. That's, I, I just, I just can't see that not happening in my career, at least. A topic that I think dovetails with what you're saying is specifically artificial intelligence. I'm curious how you've seen some common uses of, of AI in pathology. First, what I would say is, that the FDA has not approved any diagnostic algorithms in the United States or even diagnostic assist that I'm, um, that I'm aware of. Uh, and so it's all experimental um, or people are using it for non-clinical reasons, for research reasons only, and how it's actually being used in the United States by different organizations, I, I'm not sure. But I know what different companies are doing and the uses that they see. A lot of the initial use cases that I've seen at least marketed um, which are non-clinical has to do with uh, case sorting where AI will you know, sort cases based on what it thinks a, di a potential diagnosis could be um, to try and optimize things that way. Sometimes they'll do notifications. I know uh, radiology has some FDA approved applications that'll do use cases like that, kind of case triage with a preliminary possible a notification that something could potentially be a certain diagnosis, whatever. Um, so that's, that's one application that I've seen people working on. Predictive analysis is another one that um, some companies, at least early on, focused on that exclusively. So if you can predict mismatch repair syndrome or Lynch syndrome based on the H&E alone using an algorithm versus having to do all of the uh, like immunostains or additional testing, like that'd be one example of like a predictive type testing. Or, or uh, drug companies have been looking at AI to predict drug responses. 
So based on different features that an algorithm can determine, you can predict whether how well a drug one drug is going to work for you versus another one for your tumor type or whatever. Beyond that, diagnosis is another one, and some people are using case sorts. Diagnosis could fall could mean a bunch of things, and it does mean a bunch of things to different companies. So if your AI does diagnosis, so if you're doing case sorting, any type of case sorting, you're relying on a preliminary type diagnosis in order to sort it. Uh, versus some companies are working on, you know, we're going to diagnose it, subtype it, call the margin status, generate the report, like basically try and automate the pathologist's job. So those are kind of like two ends of the spectrum of what diagnosis could mean. Um, and some people are looking at d- diagnostic algorithms solely for like QAQC. So after the fact, pathologists have already diagnosed it, and then it'll run through some type of QAQC in the background to try and flag a potential miss or something like that. Those are the main use cases that I see. There are a lot of other use cases so like virtual stains, if you're digitizing it, you can use the features of the digitization to auto-generate a different type of staining that doesn't look like H&E. It looks, you know, if you're trying to highlight elastin or, you know, other types of factors in there, you can do it digitally and digitally enhance it. And other algorithms are, are bypassing a bunch of the upfront TC process completely, where they'll just take an actual tissue or unstained tissue and then use some type of algorithm to generate a pseudo H&E and move on to other types of, um, you know, other types of staining patterns to diagnose things up. So, so yeah, there, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, the technology is amazing. It's much farther along than people probably realize. It'll be interesting to see what use cases really get used. Like what really ends up being practical and efficient for pathologists and clinicians in terms of all this technology, because there's, there's a bunch of different things being developed and some of it I think is not really going to do much and other stuff I think would be highly useful. So <laughs> it just kind of depends on, uh, yeah, well, we'll see what the market decides 10 years from now. So, <laughs> Given those use cases you've illustrated, if you were to sum it up, what would you say are some of the key advantages of using AI in pathology? I still think they're kind of theoretical. Um, they haven't been well established, the benefits of AI yet, uh, in, in my opinion, kind of where it's at right now. Uh, and that's what the investment community is betting on. Uh, so when they when they pick their company, they're betting on who's going to actually build something that's useful. And right now, it's it, it, it kind of is a quite big question mark in terms of what's what you know what's going to be adopted and truly be useful. But yeah, I think it is theoretical. But theoretically, you know, AI could make you significantly more efficient, which which allows the price points to drop internationally, especially where there is these dramatic needs for you know shortage and coverage for for pathologists. People can't afford. People just can't afford diagnostic tests in certain countries. Uh, it was just the reality. And so taking an algorithm that, yeah, it might, how well the algorithm works will come into play. But if your algorithm is, you know, works really well and you can exclude high-risk diseases, you know, with 100% sensitivity, then you should be able to automate a certain subset of diagnosis when, when the option is no diagnosis versus a diagnosis that's, you know, right 99.9% of the time even if it's automated, I mean, that's significantly better care for that community. That's not in the United States. That would be, you know, an international uh, implementation could look something like that. But so, yeah, I think it's theoretical. But I mean, at the end, at the end of the day, in my opinion, AI needs to make your life better. It's got to make the physician more efficient somehow. I'm not sure that case triage really does it. I know that it's an early use case in the United States that people pitch because it's, there's nothing diagnostic with it. It's just case triage. So and kind of going down that point, uh, depending on what you want out of your AI will dictate what you choose to implement inside of your system. So when you're looking at a platform, you say you're trying to go digital, or you're like, well, who should I go digital with? There's a bunch of different vendors. 
there are a ton of software companies that will, you know, try and plug in. And it, it really depends on what you want AI to do. If you want AI to triage your case versus if you want AI to diagnose your case, set up your report, and, you know, truly make you efficient in the long run, those are two very different propositions. They're actually architect, the AI itself is architected very differently. And one is significantly more expensive than the other one to roll out. Uh, and so I'd say, uh, you know, some of the investment community, as well as plenty of the physicians, um, they hear AI and they're like, oh, I want to do AI. It's going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. The reality is, is it's not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be able to do X or it's going to be able to do Z. And so it's like, what, which, what do you want <laughs> out of your platform? And that's going to dictate what you choose to do. And there's some prominent companies that have published different use cases already. And they, you know, and some of them are prominent publications, but the way that they're architected makes it impossible to do certain use cases with at least that portion of their algorithm. You're, you're basically betting on a horse to, to pick a platform right now um, without seeing how things come out because, and there's so many factors on the pre-analytics space. So before the algorithm runs, you've got a file type, you've got a scanner type, you've got a stain type, you've got a processing type, and all of those impact how well the AI performs. And so you can make your AI perform decent on like all the different variables, or you can control those variables and build something that works amazing. But, but then it's, more, it's a more brittle algorithm. It works amazing, but you have to control certain factors up front. You can't just roll it out like, hey, this, this software has AI, it's gonna be great. It just, it's, that's not how it works right now. Maybe in the future we'll get there, but there are more factors that, that are involved in, in rolling out an AI that make it practical than I think people realize at least at the, at the current, in the current state. Flipping it around then, what do you see as some of the risks uh, to applying AI in pathology? And maybe for the risks, are there any mitigants that you're aware of? If a physician is going to you know, double their case volume because all of a sudden AI can help them in some you know, form or fashion, yeah, there are definitely risks associated with that. One of, one of which is the physician turns their brain off. I'd say that's the biggest risk. You can't trust AI, especially not right now. Um, and I, don't, I think it's going to be a long time before you can fully trust it and automate anything. Uh, the mitigant that I would see with that is the physician needs to really understand what the AI is doing. Uh, you can't just put it into an actual black box and pump it out and trust what, it's, what it says. And the way that you architect your AI makes it possible to understand what it's doing. Whereas other ways, to, when you, if you architect your AI a different way, you can't really understand what it's doing. So I guess in, in my professional opinion, you would want to understand what the AI is doing, how it's architected, and that will help you know how much you can trust it. And obviously you need to do significant validation studies and in your specific laboratory, your specific instance with all of the exact same variables locked down. Uh, so it's a consistent environment. And then you'd want to test it extensively. And the physician needs to understand what the algorithm can miss um, you know, and what the probability of missing it is. So for skin, basal cell carcinoma is extremely common, the number one cancer in the world. It's a very easy diagnosis to make visually. If AI can diagnose that um, and make you more efficient in the basal cell carcinoma, you need to know exactly what it might call basal cell carcinoma, like a false positive. And so, so things like that, if the physician isn't aware of the limitations of the AI and they don't understand how it works, uh, then that would be a significant risk that would otherwise be mitigated with training, basically in education. You know, our audience is uh, composed of a lot of students, early career health professionals. I'm curious, what's your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and approaching their career in healthcare in general, given 
kind of the direction you're seeing in pathology and even more broadly in healthcare. Exactly. I mean, if this isn't just pathology, this is healthcare at large, it's changing rapidly. And, and the same technology is being plugged in everywhere that it can be right now. I would say that you need to do what you love and are interested in. You know, if you're really interested in diagnostics and pathology, but you're worried that, you know, the market's changing and you, know, you don't know what it's going to be like, there's always going to be room in every specialty for people that are, that are highly competent and passionate about what they're doing. Uh, it, does, it doesn't matter. There's always room for you. And so that's what I would do first and foremost, um, is make sure that you pick something that you enjoy. Pathology is going to change. People that are as part of the change, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Whenever there's change, there's just as much opportunity as there is risk of, you know, established players there's risk to more established players i'd say that money is important to consider when you're at least if you have as much student debt as i had when i came out of training <laughs> but now i've been out you know seven years um i would say money's a lot less important i'm really glad i didn't pick a specialty that would you know pay me more than what i thought pathology would your happiness isn't tied to money once you get past a certain number and that number usually is across any specialty in healthcare and choosing a specialty, I'd recommend that you go talk to physicians in that specialty that are in the middle to later stage of that specialty, just because physician burnout is real. And if you kind of know what kind of lifestyle you want to be, what kind of person you want to be, you should go talk to somebody at the later stage of that specialty and see how happy they are and how they feel about their job. Because um, there's, there's there can be a big difference between specialties. Uh, <laughs> and, and it kind of depends on what you want out of life is the reality. Uh, so I would definitely do that. The other thing that I would say is there are a ton of pathways in, in healthcare that I didn't recognize at all. There's so many opportunities outside of it, especially if you're subspecialized and you find your, your niche, whatever it is, uh, inside of your specialty. So you've got two physicians right here that their primary job is not seeing patients in clinic. So yeah, it's in the business world, education, research, pharma, you know, academics has all kinds of opportunities. Um, digital tech right now is massive in healthcare across any subspecialty. Uh, if you're interested in Silicon Valley type medical healthcare startups, I mean, there are tons of job openings in that space in basically every specialty that I've seen. So, so it's a it's a great time to be in healthcare, and um, I think healthcare is going to be a lot better in ten years because of it. So. Well, that's a very, very helpful synopsis, and I appreciate the the optimistic outlook. I think a lot of us are, are looking for reasons for optimism right now, so I, I think that's a great way to end. Greg, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great and nice to meet you. So I'm Dr. Richard Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>